My name is Barbara Ridpath. I'm director of St. Paul's Institute. We're delighted to be hosting this afternoon's What's Gender Got to Do With It? Women in the Economy event, co-sponsored with the Women's Resource Center, who has, by the way, done much of the work. I'm just given the space. And the Women's Budget Group. As part, this is part of our ongoing commitment to equality issues at this cathedral, be they gender, sexuality, income, race, or opportunity-based. Some of you will be aware that in July we began a series entitled Women in Leadership. This event, together with a mentoring event we're doing in early March for young women, and an event we've just shared in late March in Christian Aid on um, gender equality and new structures of gender equality at the local, national, and international level, are all part of a continuing series where we're trying not just to talk about this, but to affect some change. Um, this is a particularly propitious afternoon to be holding the event because those of you who have looked at the BBC today know that while our first Women in Leadership event came just after the vote for women bishops in the Church of England, today uh, the Church is admitting the Church of England is admitting its first women, woman bishop. It does mean that there aren't too many clerical colors in the room because many of the women clergy we know are in York celebrating that event today, but I think they're with us in spirit. Um, the timing for this is very good because I've been reading about cross-party efforts to put political platforms together that work on gender equality issues before the general election. So the timing, thanks to Vivian and everyone else, could not be better. And we're very excited about hearing not only what's needed, but really steps that can start to make a difference and the actions we can all take to do something. So I'm now going to introduce to you Vivian Hayes, who's Chief Executive of the Women's Resource Center, and she will introduce the event. Thank you, Barbara, and thanks for hosting um, this event for us and also to the Women's Budget Group. As Barbara said, it's really timely for a number of reasons, um, not least because what we see is um, discussions about the economy not working. We've had Miliband talk about cooperative capitalism and Cameron talk about responsible capitalism. So there is a door open for us to find a way to reshape the economy um, that works for everybody. Our fear is that um, often when new debates start, women are excluded. And again, we're left at the bottom of the pile, um, at the sharp end of austerity policies, and with women's contribution almost invisible. So today is about us putting our mark on that debate, and I hope that we're going to have lively question and answers and that some of those might be challenging because it's through those challenges in debate that we reach the best solutions. Um, I'd like to thank all our panellists and our chair today and um, I now hand over to Sophia Cannon, the chair. Thank you all. Good afternoon and welcome. It's timely that we're here today. There is 101 days until the election. And it's important for you all to realise that of the non-voters in this country, one million more women didn't vote. And as we're all aware, the hard-won fight that we had to get the vote 97 years ago 
we can imagine that our ancestors and our ancestors are turning in their graves. And importantly, one of the major issues about how we managed to improve the parliamentary representation in this country, unfortunately, not many women or men are aware, is actually coming to an end. So the Sex Discrimination Election Candidates Act 2002 has a sunset clause embedded in it, which runs out at the end of this year. So the all-woman shortlist put forward by the Labour Party, and to an extent the A-list promulgated by the Conservatives, after the end of this year will be illegal. If we did not have legislation to support women's representation in Parliament, I hope you will realise today that not only your daughters would not have equal representation in Parliament, not even your daughter's daughters, because it's going to take another 99 years without legislation, just through the natural ebb and flow of promoting women who wish to come forward. Some of you may not realise another important date in your calendars. November the 20th last year, I hope you were sitting next to a man in your office because from that date on, you may not be aware that you effectively were working for free. Because the gender pay gap is real. If you're in your 20s, you can be looking at £150,000 less than the bloke that sits opposite you, who may be less qualified, less educated, and of course, less able to do the job. And further on, in our homes, in our everyday lives, austerity has a female face because we're very privileged to be here. And as you know, many of the debates in feminism have been, shall we check our privilege? Yes, we should, because we're here. But there are very many women who are on the breadline, who do not have the opportunity to be here, to be in the world of work. And due to the changes in child benefit, albeit they are fortunate enough to be married or living with a man, who is a higher income taxpayer, they no longer receive child benefit. They are now at the behest of their husband to give them the housekeeping, as if this was the turn of the century. So gender being on the agenda in relation to your economic might is important. And this is what we are here today to discuss. What would a gender-equal society look like and how and what mechanisms would we use today to get there? May I introduce to you, in turn, I have Rebecca Omonera. She's a freelance reporter. Her focus is immigration, women and economics. And I have Professor Stefan Stern, visiting professor from the Cass Business School. And then to my right, I have Jerome de Henault. 
He is a social economist. His research interests, of course, are economics, with a special emphasis on gender, labour and household economics, fiscal, social policy, and he is a lecturer at the Open University. And when she arrives, there is Vicky Price. She's an economist and the former joint head of the UK's Government Economic Service. Attendees, each person will speak for about 10 minutes answering the question, a brief introduction of who they are and what their position is, and with a short summary. May I introduce you to the panel? Okay, um, I'm Rebecca Omanera. I'm a freelance reporter, and um, I'm interested in using my journalism to expose problems within society, but also to find solutions. To that end, I do a lot of work with universities, most recently Warwick and the LSE, on translating research on politics, law and the economics for the general public. Much of the work I did last year was about people in and out of work, those struggling to make ends meet on low incomes. Many of these people were women, and many of these women were recent migrants, asylum seekers and refugees. The women I met faced a number of economic problems. The nightmare of uncertain migration status, whether they were applying for asylum, trying to regularise their status, or appealing a rejected claim, this all, all these reasons could act as, as a limit on, their, on the opportunities that they had to earn a living or to care for their children. I met one woman who'd waited for one year, ten months when I met her, probably two years now, for the Home Office to make a decision on her claim. In the meantime, she is not legally able to work. She, uh, she can't um, claim a full amount of benefits, so she relies on a very limited amount of £70 a week in the form of a cashless payment card, and this covers food and anything else that she can get at her local supermarket. But her complaint is not that this money is not enough, and not that it's not enough for her and her two children. It's the lack of opportunity to improve her situation that's the problem. So she tried to enrol in college, for example, but she couldn't afford the childcare, because her youngest child is one. So she wants to work, she wants to go to college, she wants to be useful. Now, I met this lady for a fantastic charity called Women for Ref Refugee Women. Who, are, who, as well as campaigning, provide a strong network for women in similar situations. They host lunches, skills, skills classes, opportunities to volunteer, effectively empowering women to take some control over their lives. But they are a very small charity. Charities like these aren't the solution here. She needs a decision on her application. She needs to work, or at least be preparing herself for work. Then there's the problem of relationship breakdowns. These can have an enormous economic impact on migrant women. Some stay in difficult relationships because of a lack of alternative. Others, like Jay, a single parent I came across uh, from Birmingham, have no choice. Jay arrived in the UK in June 2005 to join her husband who was already settled here. After a while, the relationship fell apart and her husband has disappeared and we don't know where he is today. 
Jay is now the sole provider of her two children, with some support from her local authority, as stipulated under the Children's Act. They live in, a host in hostel accommodation, receive £70 a week subsistence allowance. And Jay has spent the last three years trying to sort out her immigration status, with the added complication that she has incurred nearly £2,000 worth of debt trying to pay rogue solicitors who did very little to fix her status and left her with a huge bill. And she's not the only person in this sort of situation. There are lots of individuals like her across the country. Jay, in the meantime, has no recourse to other public funds such as child benefit or council housing. So it's really difficult to see how Jay can get herself out of this situation, provide for her children and lift the whole family out of penury. Then there's the problem of welfare reform. Many of these women are in low-paid, insecured work, so they are hit in the same way as British women with caring responsibilities, who might previously have relied on state services, social security payments to supplement their incomes and help with things like rent. Plenty of research published in the last four years has shown that women are paying and continue to pay more for austerity. You can look at House of Commons um, library research or Fawcett Society reports or the Women's Budget Group work um, if you want to read more about this. Um, but there's not much research, there's very little on the impact on minority and ethnic minority women, um, let alone refugee and migrant women. Though um, Coventry Women's Voices Group and the Centre for Human Rights and Practice at Warwick University did produce a report in 2013 called Layers of Inequality, which looked specifically at Coventry and found that my minority women were actually the biggest losers by far. They had higher rates of unemployment and redundancy and really struggled uh, to get back into work after a period on JSA. So the point is, a pattern is emerging. For most of the migrant women that I meet, the issue is trying to secure work that can cover the cost of living or at least find adequate support and advice from state agencies. I was at a county court uh, recently outside of London, and um, I came across one, one woman. She's a recent migrant. I'm not quite sure what her status was, but she worked for an agency and relied on shift work. The reason she was at court was because her social landlord was trying to evict her for rent arrears, £900. She'd had a few warnings, so they were going for an outright possession order, which meant she faced losing her home that day. Now, for whatever reason, she hadn't applied for housing benefit. And though she said she gets a child benefit of around £135 a month, she... Oops, sorry. I'm just in place. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, the... What I'm trying to get at is how did she get to this situation? Um, and the reason that she gave was that she didn't have enough shift work, and when she doesn't have enough shift work, she doesn't have enough money for her rent. Her appointment to see the judge was about half nine. Um, it got to 11.30. She still hadn't been seen. I could see she was looking really nervous and kept looking at the clock. It turned out she had to go and collect her child um, from nursery at 12. The duty solicitor tried to convince her to stay because it would look better in court if she stayed to fight her corner, but she couldn't because she faced late fees, so she left. If you look at the situation for many migrant and refugee women, a lot of their problems highlight existing inequalities in the UK. 
They are underemployed, they're on temporary contracts, they work in undervalued sectors such as care. Tougher migration controls mean access to jobs is limited. These problems are getting worse, and there will be consequences for a generation of British children born to these women as well. And for me, um, it's Kamika's story that best illustrates this. Um, when I first met 30-year-old Kameka at the ter- a terrace house where she lives in East London and she shares with several other non-EU nationals, she told me she was lucky. Why? Because she's legally permitted to work. All the other tenants in the house were also foreign-born. Some were asylum seekers and others had had claims rejected. So it could be worse, she told me. Kameka works as a home care advisor in Essex. A typical working week, well, there isn't really a typical working week. One week she might have two days' work, three days' work, if she's lucky, four or five. She doesn't have a fixed employment contract. Mostly she spends half an hour with each person before she has to move on. There's a lot of walking between each appointment, but she doesn't drive, so it's quicker than waiting around for a bus. On average, she gets paid 100 to £150 a week, sometimes less. This just about pays for childcare and travel. It takes an hour and a half to get to work by train from Walthamstow to the clients she sees in Romford. Her seven-year-old is struggling. He's always tired, and the teacher stays behind at school. Recently, she moved him for, for the fourth time to a new school in Essex, which is close to her employer's head office. That way she can drop him at school and still make the first appointment at 9am. After school he goes straight to a childminder and Kameka picks him up at 7pm. It must be 7 because every minute past 7 costs £1. Then they get the train home to Walthamstow. So he isn't coping well and it's not surprising. There is some help for Kameka. The reason she lives in a house with asylum seekers and other migrants is because the Home Office has put her there after giving her temporary leave to remain. I'm just going to skim over the next bit, but she arrived in Britain when she was 14 and um, she didn't realise her uh, immigration status hadn't been sorted out till she tried to renew her passport in her 20s. Her case is a bit complicated, but it's becoming more common as the Home Office tweaks and fiddles with support for migrants. No one wants to take responsibility for her, so she's in low-paid work, she needs access to subsidised council housing and child benefits, but her immigration status means she doesn't qualify, and her, the council, the local council, saying they don't have a duty to house her. So far, she's stayed in five bed and breakfasts in the last few years. Um, no consideration is given to where she works when they put her in a new house, so it doesn't matter if it's like you know, an hour, two hours to get to work. Um, increasingly, one of, because of counts, uh, constraints on council budgets, um, more and more councils are refusing to prioritise the needs of migrants like Kameka, and obviously there's not much um, public support for that anyway, so there's going to be no pressure on them to, to try and sort this situation out. I think just to quickly conclude, um, what I'd like to get from today is the start of a discussion which considers the needs of women like these because their, their situation is particular to the fact that they're women, they're in low-paid work and they have caring responsibilities. Uh, debates about immigration talk, talk uh, about numbers and access to benefits, but the reality is obviously more complex. And the needs of British working class people are actually more aligned with, with these poor migrants living in the UK. Um, So our discussions really need to start uh, reflecting that. Thanks. Well, uh, good afternoon, um, 
very good to be here and thanks for the invitation and the microphone is just about the right height for me which is a pleasant change. Um, yes, Sophia very, very, very generously described me as a professor. I should say those of you who are academic, real academics, I'm a visiting professor and you'll know what that means. Uh, uh, in the old joke, you know, my mum would say, uh, son, you know, by me, you're a professor, and by your father, you're a professor, but by a professor, you're no professor. Um, anyway, it's a very nice honour that Casper Business School have given me. I'm really a journalist in disguise. I was uh, at the FT for a few years writing a column on management, and I've written about business management, really, for the past 20-odd years. You might remember a business programme called the, the Money Programme on BBC Two on Sunday nights, which I used to work on, and uh, Management Today magazine, and that sort of thing. So that's really where I'm coming from the world of work, uh, and why things don't change. Because, as Sophia pointed out, it was 1974 that we had an Equal Pay Act. And yet, you look at those graphs about pay, there's still a very big gap. And the lines are very, very, very slowly getting a little bit closer. And it's going to take another 100 years or so at this rate of change, uh, uh, if, if all continues the same way, for them to actually hit people being paid the same, men and women for the same job. Um, so, it seems to me women have been very patient <coughs> waiting for change. Um, why haven't organisations changed quicker? Why haven't things changed more in terms of equality for women? Well, a friend of mine, um, Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, has written a rather good book called Why Women Mean Business, and she says at one point that, um, you know, organisations often have uh, women's networks, and so on, and this isn't, a, this isn't a bad thing, it's good to have networks and support, but the, she says the implication behind some of these groups is that somehow perhaps it's, it's the women who need fixing, you know, the women are the, the problem, and actually that probably isn't true when you look in the boardrooms of organisations, commercial organisations and senior management teams, you still see uh, an overwhelming preponderance of men. Um, I spoke last week at a, a, a rather good network called City Mothers, although dads are allowed to go too, as well as uh, mothers. Um, professional people, as the name implies, working in the city, in, in business, a lot of them, a lot of them, wanting to make successful careers, but also wanting not to go mad. Uh, <coughs> having to meet the demands of employers, probably on a full-time basis, but also, of course, because of... Um, work at home, uh, you know, people are stretched and life in organisations is very, very difficult and people talk about flexible working, there's flexibility perhaps for the employer, how much for the employee varies on the organisation um, and many of them saying to me, you know, the part-time route, you know, unfortunately sometimes called the, you know, the mummy track which has consequences for pay, among other things, that you see on those graphs, and also for promotions. Some of these organisations still, decades after legislation, something like equality is still very, very hard to achieve. So I don't think we have to fix the women, really. Uh, I think it's the people who are in charge who are so often and overwhelmingly men who perhaps need to... Uh, at least think a bit harder. Now, legislation is always a rather blunt instrument. Voluntary agreements are better by and large because people on both sides, if they really agreed to something, can achieve a lot more than 
what will tend to be a minimalist uh, intervention through uh, law. And so you'd have to acknowledge the great success, really, um, within certain parameters, of um, the 30% club under the, in the past few years. Uh, this was an initiative you know, in response to something that the Secretary of State, Vince Cable, launched with Lord Davis about why are there so few women in boardrooms, and there has been, and almost doubling from a very low base of uh, women, but again, usually non-executive directors in British boardrooms of the largest companies. It's progress of a sort. It's been done almost in a voluntary basis, although the threat of legislation has been there from Europe as well as domestically. Uh, to mandate higher percentages than we've seen in, in Norway, in Germany, and other countries in Europe, to have uh, 40% is the number that some have chosen, 40% of directors to be female. Uh, but again, we've seen this has been a sort of, it's limited progress in the sense that, you know, there aren't a lot more executive directors, female, in the boardroom, and, and then the senior management levels, really very little change in terms of who is getting senior positions. So by and large, organisations really not changing that much that quickly, which is why I and uh, my friend Vicky uh, believe actually that quotas probably are a good thing or balance. People have waited long enough, and Vicky can tell you a little bit more about a book she's working on uh, that I'm helping her a bit with about quotas. Uh, but I won't steal her thunder. I've got, you know, I'm biased for lots of reasons. I've got two daughters. Um, and one of them said to me when she was eight, um, Dad, can girls be lawyers? Uh, now, I hope she didn't ask that question because of anything I said. I hope she wasn't in doubt because of anything she'd heard from me or her mother. But I could only presume she was responding to the images she sees on TV and the conversations she has at school. Uh, and that tells you, again, that it's only one example, but perhaps not an unfamiliar one, about how deep-seated some of these uh, are called prejudices, and that speak plainly, how deep-seated some of them are about roles and uh, careers and so on. So it starts very early. Uh, it's a big problem. We've had legislation, but not much has changed. Uh, Linda Grattan, who's a real professor at London Business School, um, says that only when the, these famous captains of industry see their daughters being regularly and frequently stymied in professional life will, they, will, they, will anything change. And you know what she means. But of course, many of them have had, have daughters, and, you know, as I say, not that much has changed, and businesses by and large, to generalise, you know, have been reluctant to accept. Uh, uh, legislation, uh, as, as businesses so often are. So I'm very glad you're having this discussion. I look forward to some uh, good and difficult questions. Um, I can explain but not excuse businesses and organisations' slowness at changing for reasons I've perhaps hinted at. Uh, and if people do have some bright ideas and suggestions and ways of doing things better, I'll be very pleased to hear them because, as I say, in over 20 years of writing about this stuff, you know, I've been to quite a lot of meetings like this, where people have said similar-ish things, and not a great deal has changed yet. Thanks.
Thank you very much. Um, I'm Jerome Deheno, a senior lecturer in economics at the Open University and also member of the Women's Budget Group, which is a voluntary uh, organization, independent organization regrouping academics, uh, re uh, researchers, policy experts, and activists from trade unions and other voluntary organizations to analyze uh, economic policy and fiscal policy of the UK and from a gender perspective and, and try to find solutions and um, bring about the debate on, on gender equality to the forefront. And I'm just going to present you in, in, uh, in the 10 minutes. I have a, a little bit of uh, how women have fared in the, in the recent years in terms of austerity policy, but also employment, because it's important to try and, and refocus on, on what's happening. We've heard a lot about uh, employment growing, and indeed women's employment rate is now at its highest ever whereas men's employment rate is still below the, the peak it reached before the crisis. Uh, yet the types of employment and the nature of employment is very different, and we know it was different before the crisis, but it's still different. I'm just going to give you a few um, examples, and also looking at the, the impact, the gender impact of austerity cuts. I, I, I recommend you to, to go on uh, the Women's Budget Group website, uh, um, just Google Women's Budget Group, I can't remember the address, but I think it's wbg.org.uk. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've got analysis, detailed analysis of all the budget announcements, including how uh, simulation of, of all the cumulative impact of austerity uh, impacts on women. For example, um, the female loan parents and single pensioners have lost much more than their, their male counterparts. Uh, in terms of cuts in public services and uh, change in social security benefits. Um, and also men have benefited in other ways from the changes in policy um, because not everything was about tax increase and cuts in public services. There has been some tax giveaways, but they went ma mainly to men, such as the raising the income tax personal allowance, which actually benefit men more than women because uh, uh, more men are employed and earn more. And also the, the, the subsequent rises in, the, in that allowance um, meant that all those who were already taken out of tax, even though the government was proud to say that it was taking a, a lot of uh, persons out of tax, once that was happening, further increase didn't benefit them at all. So that's an important, and it's, a, it's an important <coughs> point, not just on, on, the, on the numbers of beneficiaries, but it's costing to 12 billion pounds, which is roughly the equivalent of the uh, cuts in social benefits that are still to be um, carried out in the next parliament as announced by the, the Chancellor recently. So these are a few numbers to, to give you some perspective on it. Obviously we all know there are other uh, cuts such as in child benefits, uh, the lower operating of other benefits, cuts in services, especially social care, further education, social housing, all of which were benefiting, uh, all of these services were benefiting women more than men, obviously, because they live in lower income households, more frequently, such as indeed uh, lone pensioners. Uh, and single uh, uh, lone parents and single pensioners. So these these are also important impact. Um, in terms of employment, the type of employment actually, the um, women's unemployment, although it's lower than than men's unemployment, has decreased less fast than than men's unemployment since 2010. Um, by 13 percent, while men's unemployment decreased by 31 percent. And therefore, and it's still 24% higher um, than it was uh, before the crisis, whereas for men it's only 14% higher. In terms of long-term employment for the youth, it has doubled for women aged, 
18 to 24, from 12% to 25% in terms of the, the, the proportion of unemployed who are unemployed for longer than 12 months. Um, so again, a, a, a very unequal uh, aspect uh, between men and women. And in terms of uh, the other uh, characteristic of this crisis is the, the rise in self-employment. And it's far from being uh, entrepreneurship and innov innov innovative, promising future. It's very precarious self-employment, and it's almost like a way out of unemployment or inactivity. But um, most, uh, a, a large majority, about 52% of uh, self-employed women, are part-time without a second job. And the, 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 the rate of self-employment has increased faster for women than men since 2008. 38% increase compared to 9% for men. Now women are about 32% of all the self-employed people in the UK. And of course women work part-time more. So in terms of uh, earnings and income, it has an impact. We know the gender wage gap is decreasing slowly, uh, but this is usually measured as the full-time uh, um, wage gap. But if you look at the earnings gap, that is uh, for all, all women and all men earning, well, in, uh, accounting for the working hours, obviously it's still very high and it's about 40%. So women earn uh, per week 40% less than men on average. Um, and as a result, the incomes have been uh, um, not equalizing at all uh, for, from, from this double point of view of earnings uh, being flat in the economy and cuts in, uh, in uh, tax and benefits, uh, uh, cash benefits. In terms of policy implications, the, um, the austerity and recovery don't, don't seem to go together, as we've just seen for some of these figures. Um, they are either un unrelated, or some economists, a lot of us, would say that they are contradicting each other with respect to economic growth, and, and especially growth in earnings and quality of jobs. Um, so perhaps austerity, first, first-hand analysis would say austerity is a, maybe unbalanced between tax and, and, and uh, tax increases and uh, spending cuts. Indeed, 60% of the public spending cuts is still to, are still to come, if, if according to the plans by, by this coalition government, um, which will will make the impact even more than than what it has already been. Um, but then also the question whether austerity is at all necessary. Um, for example, the OECD analysis uh, uh, showed that increase in inequality is damaging to economic growth, and the result, partly um, of uh, the austerity plan, was to increase income inequality between the rich and the poor, um, and therefore it, it, it would have a negative impact uh, on, on growth, if growth is uh, an objective. And that's the last question. Is, whether growth is an objective when it is uh, to talk, when we are talking about gender equality and sustainability of our, of our system in terms of providing quality of life for everyone, the, um, the, 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 these impact, these negative impact on men and women, and all the, 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 this is to be thought as um, austerity has made worth a picture that was already bleak. Gender equality before the crisis was far from being achieved, even though there were trends uprising. There were still a lot of structural concerns about the, the nature of our jobs, the division of paid and unpaid work between men and women, and the lack of commitment by a consecutive government to provide uh, the social infrastructure this country needs. Uh, by social infrastructure, we mean 
uh, investment in education, in healthcare, in social care, in social housing, in all the, the goods and, and services that are needed to, for the society to reproduce itself, to provide for f future generations, be it for children, but also for elderly, um, because we, all, we are all going to, go, to grow older and, and we will need more services. And these services can't be provided efficiently by the market. Uh, for a series of reasons, productivity being one, because it's a re relational activity, it cannot be, um, the, the costs are, are, are linked to the quality it provides, and, and therefore from an economic point of view we can't reduce uh, the cost uh, uh, without reducing quality. Therefore it has to be taken out of the market, of a market mechanism to be provided. And that's important that the government and, and, and all of us recognize that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be seen as a cost. It is an investment for the future. And um, that's what basically the, the Women's Budget Group wanted to, to emphasize in terms of um, uh, a feminist plan. So there, there is an, an alternative to Plan A, which is Plan F, a feminist plan, of investing in social infrastructure, in um, revaluing re care work, revaluing the wages of care work, the working conditions, but also trying to uh, rebalance the unpaid care that's provided by men and women, at the moment mainly by women, so incentivize, uh, Stephen talked about um, um, engaging more men in, 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 uh, in the debate, and indeed we need to, to have more men caring for their children, for their relatives, and we have to change the policies to, to change the incentives to, to, um, to see that happen. So that, that's basically it. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Well, first of all, apologies for arriving a little bit late, but um, for those of you who don't know me, I, I declare an interest, which is that I am Greek, and the Greeks have just uh, managed to vote the first anti-austerity, extreme left-wing government in power, which has um, sort of brought the jitters, if you like, across the sort of markets and uh, everyone else in Europe. So, uh, Not and everyone else. Some of us are very, very, very pleased. Yes. <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear that. Really pleased to hear that, because this is the point I've been trying to make all day. That in fact, finally, you know, the Greeks have shown that austerity doesn't really work, and they have protested against it. And so, it's a very positive democratic movement, uh, which is very good news. But of course, you never know how it's going to end up. So excellent. Um, the thing is, of course, that uh, I took the conscious decision not to go to Greece for voting. In fact, I have uh, forgotten to renew my identity card, so I wouldn't have been eligible to vote. But now that we might even leave uh, Britain, I may leave uh, Europe. Um, I'm definitely going to renew my identity card next time I'm there. But by staying here and being a woman, which is really the important point, um, I have ended up doing all the channels available, whether it's radio, TV, anything you can possibly think of, um, on, on this. Uh, so I've been rather busy and, and uh, everything's been going crazy, so apologies for arriving late. The second thing, of course, that I have to apologise about is that coming down here, I, I just assumed that despite the hashtag and everything else, uh, it was no point in even worrying because I lost, um, I lost connection completely. So it was a shock when suddenly the phone started making a noise and I was actually able to do all these exciting things like Putin or what have you, but it does do so sporadically, so apologies about that. Um, 
But it just shows that perhaps we women are not terribly organised as, we, as, as we'd like to, to think we can be. But that is because we have so many different responsibilities. Uh, we multitask, we have children, um, we go to work. Um, uh, we're supposed to be even better than the men if we want to succeed. And that's really one of the points that Stefan and I are trying to make in the book that we're writing, which is called Women Need Quotas. Although originally I wanted to call it Womanomics after the other books I've written, which are called Greekonomics and Prisonomics and a few other things that are coming on. Um, and, uh, and, and it is really from, from a sense of, uh, well, we are different. I mean, women are different. What I discovered, uh, the brief spell I spent, as you probably know, in prison, is that uh, gender really matters. Uh, it really seriously matters how you treat people who have different needs and different allegiances, if you like, in terms of the external work world. Uh, women are the ones who are most responsible for, for their children. Uh, if you look at women in prison, for example, um, a third of the women who are in, in prison and have children are themselves uh, single mothers. Um, and of course you separate them from the children and the cost of society is extraordinary. I mean, I'm an economist, the first thing I did was starting to add up whether any of this was making sense. And of course women separated from the mother, from their children not only become terribly depressed and try and commit suicide, which is of course the worst thing can possibly happen, much more than the men, so there are gender differences already immediately. Uh, they account for only 5% of the prison population, and yet they, they also account for a third of the attempts of self-harm, which is extraordinary when you come to think of it. Um, so that's one very uh, you know, worrying thing. And the second thing, of course, is that because they are the carers, they are the ones who, who uh, uh, see their family, if you like, destroyed. And when a woman goes to prison, just again to understand the differences, only 5% uh, of children stay in their own homes. They're moved either to relatives, and then of course they lose contact, if you like, with their background and go downhill from then on, or they're taken into care. And there is a huge percentage of both men and women who are in prison who have been in care when they were smaller. Um, and they, the likelihood of them committing an antisocial act and also being needs, which is not in educational employment and training, um, increases very substantially and the likelihood of actually performing an antisocial act, including crime, goes up by 4%. By, uh, goes up four times, not by 4%. Now, why am I saying this? Because actually, there is economics behind every decision that even government policy can, can make. Uh, and it is at our peril, by which I mean the economy's peril, if it's not handled properly. As if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, which is what I used to do when I was... Uh, working for the government, and I was joint head of the government economic service, so my job was to make sure that across all sectors of the policy making, there was proper cost-benefit and proper analysis of any impact of a policy. You look at everything that might affect decisions to go one way or another. What seemed to be completely forgotten in terms of women is, first of all, because of course they were a small percentage of the prison population, they were ignored. And the second thing is the cost that's associated in putting women in prison is so much greater than it is for men. Not only does it cost about £50,000 a year to have them in prison, but the cost to their children, because of the factors I mentioned before, are higher for society than the cost of just putting them in prison. Because keeping a child in care costs also, on average, 50000 a year. In fact, it costs a lot more if they have all sorts of problems, which very many of them do. And then I mentioned that they grow up being needs, not in education, employment and training. Now what happens when that is the case? Then it costs society an awful lot of money to keep these people going. Uh, welfare payments and so on. And if you were to calculate all these costs, 
you would realise immediately that instead of putting people in prison, where in fact prison itself is not a deterrent for crime, uh, but actually can increase crime, has huge costs to society, which can be considerably less if you did something else, where your offending is less, where the costs are less, and where children can become proper members of society because they're kept close to their parents. Now, these are just examples of how gender needs to enter into decision-making processes that the government you know, uh, sort of uses in order to develop policy. And they very often are not. And we as women have a duty, if you like, to, to ensure that those uh, issues are, are, are put right at the top of the agenda and that the costs and benefits of particular actions are properly evaluated. But that includes the workplace issues that Stefan was talking about and also we just heard about um, uh, from the previous speaker. Now, why is that particularly important? Well, again, let's just look at what we've been hearing about wages being lower, about part-time work, self-employment, which really don't pay uh, very much at all. The stuff that Jerome was talking about. Well, the reason for writing the book that Stefan and I are doing is not because we think it's unfair. It's exactly what I do with the prisonomics book. Not because we think it's unfair, but which of course it is, sort of treating women differently and ending up with loads of women in segregated areas where they earn very little. Uh, let's look at nurses, social care and so on, populated mainly by women. But it is the cost to society. It is much easier if you're trying to influence policy to think about what you can save and what the economy can benefit from if you do it one way rather than another. On the prison stuff, you can save an awful lot of money by doing something different. We are very resource constrained. There are budget cuts all the time. If you don't do the right thing and you just overpopulate prisons, you're going to end up with more problems. On the more general work side, again, if you don't employ the women in the right places, then you lose in terms of economic growth and in terms of productivity. Now let's think about it for a second. Women now go to university a lot more than the men. I mean, they actually outnumber them. And even in the professions that you think are particularly male-dominated, strangely enough, even like medicine and, and also the legal profession, women enter those ranks in larger numbers than the men. And then, after a while, they disappear. Not only after a while do they start earning a lot less, but then they leave. Now, imagine you're an economy, a society, which invests an awful lot in your, in your training, and then you just go off and don't actually use it. But that is a waste. Economically, that is a waste. Yes, perhaps up to a point you're educating your children, you're there, you're more intelligent, etc., you're making better choices in democracies, fine. But what about the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds spent on your education by the state, by us taxpayers, you and me. Why should we lose that? And what happens, of course, is that women in particular not only suffer from unconscious bias and proper bias in various places where they work, but then, of course, they have the big motherhood trap. Do they decide to have a child? Can I come back? When they do decide to have a child and take even a little bit of time off, the wage gap that we'd heard about is never made up, which is an incredible finding. And what happens when they come back? They very often get passed out over for promotion. We know that from, from case studies that, that have been done in, 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 uh, by um, the Department for Business. 
But also what happened is that they come back part-time or they come back to areas which require lower levels of skills than the ones they, they, they had originally before they left. Of course you lose productivity that way. They don't work as, 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 as long hours perhaps as they would like to do and they work in levels that are below what they can do. What does that do to the economy? What is it that we're worried about right now? Low productivity. And what do we do with our policies? We actually encourage that low productivity about women. So, of course, there is a choice that women can make. I always thought it was great because I could decide at any point to just stay at home. And nobody would say, oh, well, you know, why have you done? You're a failure. They'd say, great, you've decided to put your five children above anything else. Well, in my case, I couldn't afford to put my five children above anything else because otherwise they'd starve. So I had to go back to work. But a woman has a choice. But as an economy, we don't have that choice. As an economy, we need to encourage women to get back to work as quickly as possible, I'm afraid. Or if they get back to work, to go back to work in a way that allows for all these other pressures they have, this multitasking we were talking about, this need to go and collect children from school we've just been hearing about, or take them to the doctors, to be accommodated in a company. And particularly, we want the senior positions to be clearly identifiable as places that women should be aspiring to and also completely uh, you know, have the right to be, to be there. So what we're calling for in the book, on economic grounds, for the economy as a whole, of course, as I said, anyone can decide to do whatever they like at the end of the day, but at least they have the choice, is for companies to have quotas for executives, for, for senior positions, which then inevitably create the types of structures in companies that encourage women to stay in the work, that encourage them to come back when they have uh, children, encourage them to know that they can aspire for those roles, and by the quotas it means that companies will have no other choice but to make sure that the women they employ have the ability to rise in their organisations and then be counted, if you see what I mean. And that's what the book is about. We don't worry about, about quotas for boards, we worry about quotas for executives, and uh, because we think it's actually incredibly good for the economy as a whole. Thank you. I'm feeling rather smug because I've kept a time to the second. Um, but that's to ensure that there is time for you all to ask questions, as many as possible. And it's important that we're in a very small space. Nobody cares if we can't hear your voice, but I need to hear your voice. So if you've never asked a question before in a venue at a, a function such as this and you feel intimidated by the illustrious company, don't. <laughs> I can tell you something, we were all there once. For in summary of what everyone has said, um, some people may know me as Undercover Mother on Twitter. <laughs> now, funny enough, what happened to me probably goes across what everybody has to say here. Um, I was a trustee at the Women's Resource Centre, and I was for seven years. Um, during that time, I was fortunate to um, become pregnant, and <laughs> pregnant with twins. And I can only describe the, how would I put it, the poverty that I found myself in. First of all, becoming pregnant. Secondly, um, yes, he ran away and left me. And thirdly, I also became ill. And what was quite shocking, that 
One minute I was a high-earning, high-flying barrister, and the next minute I could not even claim benefits, and I did not have enough money to feed my children. I could not believe it. I sold everything that I had, and I sat down and thought, hence the hashtag Undercover Mother, if you look at my timeline from the early days, that's how I became vocal on the importance of, actually, first of all, if you're in your 20s, that's why it's called family planning. Um, <laughs> I was 32. I was established. I had paid off my education. My education cost me to get to the position that I was £45,000 to become a barrister, and that went to waste. And then the other shocker was trying to get back to work with twins. Um, I turned up and said to my nursery manager, but I had them at the same time. <laughs> because what I hadn't realised, pregnant once, you have to pay for two. And the cost for twin childcare in London, I always throw this out to the floor because it's quite funny. How much do you think it is? Anybody? Guess. Higher. Yes, what? £70 a day times by two, times by five, times by 50. You're looking at £30,000 for twin childcare in London. At one point, one point, one twin would go in the morning and one would go in the afternoon just to allow me respite. That didn't work. But it's that issue of how easy it is to slip into poverty after pregnancy and not planning your route back into work. Again, being a barrister, I was self-employed. So you need to think about, you may think yourself in your 20s and your 30s, I don't have caring responsibilities. Oh, yes, you do. Because the other trick that you have are your parents or your grandparents. Care is female duty. You will find that if you don't have to look after your children, you may have to turn around and look after your mother. So I want you all to... <laughs> Question this panel and question your own lives about how your economic value is devalued in this economy. And importantly, what are you doing about resurrecting your rights and your responsibilities? So please ask questions. Please stand up, especially if you do not feel at the moment that economics is for you. Any questions at all? May I take them in pairs? I'm going to take pairs of questions to speed things up. I'm going to take the lady in the, lady in the red, so I do apologise, the delegate in the red, <laughs> and the delegate in the black at the back with a hand up. Could I take your questions, please? Yeah, hi, I'm Giselle Could you stand? Oh, sorry. I thought you meant that's Oh, please. Um, Giselle Warren, Institute for Public Policy Research. Um, I think most people here will be aware of the problems but less aware of exactly what we can do about it. Um, so my question is specifically around um, quotas. Um, so I, I'm a bit um, spilled on about quotas actually and, and part of my caution is that I, I think the underrepresentation of women on boards is um, it's just a symptom of, of, of a lot of wider problems that we're all aware of and correcting that won't correct uh, I, I'm not sure correcting that would correct those, those problems. So just interested in evidence in the um, statistical evidence or anecdotal from your experience of um, avoiding things that 
And the lady in the your question, please. I'm Diana, I'm the chair of the Women's question was that quotas are, are good for everybody in the room here in business, in education, in public life, but how would it assist women in very much in the private sphere, um, in poverty, to, 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 to be engaged in the economy? I don't think it does. <laughs> yes, okay. um, the, the two questions. The, the first one, you're, you're absolutely right about boards, and this is why I'm not focusing on boards at all. Um, it's the quotas are not for boards, the quotas are for uh, senior positions in companies, which then act to, as a sort of filter down to ensuring that the companies keep the people there and they encourage them to come back or have flexible working or have, have uh, uh, shared jobs, a bit like what goes on in a civil service. And then because they, have the, because they need to make sure that those, those posts are filled by the women, they, they encourage the women to continue a relationship with the company and they promote them and train them, because very often when you do part-time work, you don't get trained, um, and then therefore preserve places, not preserve, but of course they still have to, to, to go for them and, and be, you know, lots of good women will go for them, um, in order to, and, and that, that's how we work, whereas on, on the boards, what tends to happen is that the quotas are met mainly by non-executive, part-time non-executive positions. Uh, none of the people who work in the company would really even notice what goes on at the board, or at least very few people. And very many of those uh, positions, uh, because there is there are now targets for them, of the women, are met uh, by hiring you know, foreign women possibly, or, or, or serial board uh, members who may be sitting on all sorts of different boards. So, so that's, that's why boards is a non-issue really. Um, in our view, uh, the important area is just senior positions. About certain level, you have senior positions, which means that you've got to keep all the people further down. You can't just pinch them from other firms, because you all have voters. So, so you encourage the ones who you've got in your, in your, in your system to, to rise through childcare, all these provisions that the lady over there spoke about. Uh, quite a lot of them, of course, are offered by, by companies if they really find the need to keep women uh, working in their organisation. So, so it will need to be a partnership between public and private sector. But just the, on the quotas, of course, 
it's absolutely spot on that, that quotas are not going to solve everything. And of course, there are all sorts of things about importance of childcare uh, and also remunerating people economically, because that's one goal, for the work that they do, which for the moment doesn't have a price for it, like caring for your parents or even you know, your children if you have to stay at home and for the loss of your income. All we're saying is that quotas are, 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 are unnecessary, but not a sufficient condition for achieving the things that we want to achieve, and we're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, Giselle said, though, what, the evidence for quotas, are they good? Do they work? Um, shall I, perhaps I should stand Yes. Up? Yes. Just I always do what Vicky told you to do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the evidence is a bit mixed, and I think you're right. If you look at um, Sue Vinicum at Cranfield University School of Management, you know, unfortunately, as this number of non-executive directorships has risen for women, so actually at the same time, the number of um, executive roles and senior management roles has not increased at all. In fact, if anything, it seems to have gone slightly backwards. Um, so, they've, so, the, so they've hit this target partly by appointing a lot of non-executive directors. I mean, and there's a clue in the job title, non-executive. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the most you know, impactful role in the boardroom. They, they're, they're meant to be the same, but they are independent directors and, and every board is different. And if you are there as the non-exec, it can be hard for you to, to make your voice in any case, especially if you are just one woman on your own, I think a lot of people would say, until there are two or three, you can be very much isolated in the, in the conversation. So yes, so there can be a, there can be a blunt instrument at that level. It's really about change right through the organisation, so I do agree with Vicky. And the point about care, I think, is terribly important. Um, we know about these um, so-called caring jobs where people are being paid by the 15 minutes, not being paid for travel time, on just over minimum wage, uh, so to earn what you might call a living wage for the day, they have to put in a 12, 14 hour day and in these 15 minute windows are suddenly supposed to provide something that we call care for people who need clearly often much more than 15 minutes attention in terms of people with, with, with disabilities or who need help just to cope with the day. So something, something unfortunate to say the least has happened to the word care because we're describing these activities as care, but there isn't, I think, I think, the, I think it was Unison or was it the RCN who talked about time to care. Health professionals realise that under the pressure they're under, there isn't time to care. They're meant to be caring professionals. So there is another conversation, really, but I mean, I'm glad you raised it because we can, we can uh, brush over these things without really thinking about even the words we're using, what we're describing. Uh, and so that's why pay at the bottom clearly has to come up to make these sustainable jobs for people and to make caring a, a rewarding in every sense option. Thank you. Uh, yeah, just, just perhaps, perhaps the, the quota discussion, obviously I'm not be, being complimentary to all the policies that are needed, but perhaps the quota should be in politics more than in uh, economy, in uh, the, the private sector, that, that um, when you see um, other governments in other countries or other parliaments with, with a higher representation of women, they are also more gender equal, uh, they have implemented more gender equal policies and therefore the care agenda can be more um, put forward, uh, better put forward by, by that. By, by quota, the problem in the UK is probably not so much to have quota in the list, the electoral list, but changing the, the elector, electoral system because the first past the vote in very geographically isolated um, entities will, will create obviously bias if you just ask people to, as opposed to a proportional representation system, um, which has proven much more efficient, for example, in Belgium, Netherlands, and Denmark, and all that. So uh, that's 
probably joining both debates together, but it's still a long way. Thank you. Can I just quickly add um, to the lady in red, if you wanted to find out more about quotas, the LSE, is act the Gender Institute is actually running a commission on inequality and power and politics, and they've done a lot on quotas and that, looking at places like Spain and Portugal and Ireland as well. And it's quite interesting, so I'll, I'll give you details after. Questions? The lady in the white and the lady who stood up um, sorry, I'm saying lady. The delegate in the white. The delegate in the scarf, right at the back. Please, in order. My name is Helen Jackson. Um, I'm um, on the board of, of Grandparents Plus. And one small point I wanted to make was that. Um, to Vicky, one of the things that happens when single mothers go to prison is that uh, the parents yeah. often suddenly find themselves caring uh, for the children that, that is not recognised properly in any uh, of the present legislative situation. The majority of such people are of working age Employers can't understand why a grandparent is wanting time off uh, rather than a parent after they are discriminated against. The other point I wanted to ask really is we can deplore the gender gap, we can deplore the inequity of, of um, wealth and many people have on a gender basis, but should we not address this partly? by the celebration of part-time working, of job sharing, and make that an aspect within employment where we do expect good quality employment to actually celebrate the part-timers, make sure that when there is um, when there are opportunities in senior management, job shares are offered so that that responsibility is there that also the fact that people are wanting to engage part of their lives in this hugely important job of care can properly be recognised as well. So I do know both of my sons-in-law, for example, have had immense pressure when they want at work, when they have wanted only to work part-time without losing prestige, I respect. Okay. So, I better, better celebrate that sort of answer and indeed carry on the glory of the election. Thank you. At the back. Thank you very much. I wish I'd jumped in now, Helen, because as always, you're a very tough act to follow. Uh, and I'd just like to pay tribute to what you did as a Labour MP in making sure that the issues of women were put at the forefront of uh, the Labour agenda, because I think that's the issue that I want to make. Could you announce who you are, please? Well, sorry, my name is Siobhan Ending, and I, I uh, work for a trade union, uh, which is United Union, and we have many of our uh, members who are those women who work in social care uh, and who are those women who do need a pay rise, really, to make that big difference. And if you ask them, what, they, what matters to them is money in the pocket. So if you cut child benefit or transfer child benefit over to universal credit, for them, it's money in their pocket, which makes absolutely the difference. And 
you know, from my perspective, we've come a long way in terms of the care agenda. From the likes of Harriet Harman, for example, uh, when she started basically the issue of childcare, it was never a political issue, and yet now it is becoming one of the top political issues. And I think that is because people have been chipping away and working really hard. But it just seems to me that, particularly for the equality impact assessments that are carried out, and I will get to my point in a minute, but the, the issue about Birmingham, for example, the equal pay case, when the equal pay case was run by all of those women who worked for Birmingham City Council, the way the media spun it was not how appalling it had been that women had been underpaid for decades, but actually how awful this was going to be in the amount that it was going to cost the local authority to redress the balance. I think that's a problem, and I think we've got a cultural issue where our Prime Minister will say that equality impact assessments are tick box nonsense, to quote, yeah. then we've got a problem. My question is, when the Equality and Human Rights Commission had the audacity to question the 2010 budget in terms of its equality impact, what followed then was almost decimation of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. What needs to happen to rebuild our framework and carry on that argument, which actually puts the issues of equality on the agenda and holds the government to account? Thank you. Joan. Oh, uh, well, maybe after. I mean, uh, there was just a, a small point to, to reply about the part-time. Obviously, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult question in a way, and, and not difficult if you change the label, but there's a big divide in, in feminist uh, research about what to do with the part-time. Should we value part-time? Should we recognize part-time? Should we embrace part-time and give more quality to part-time? Or should we actually dismiss the idea that part-time is a solution that can be valued? And instead, in order, because the, the, the important is not so much to work part-time, it's to be able to combine work and other aspects of life, such as caring or getting more education or having leisure. But the, the only way to do that in order to achieve gender equality is actually to reduce full-time. It's to reduce working time, it's to reduce the, the centrality of our workload that we have. And especially in the context of austerity where wages are, are depressed, people have to work longer, they don't have a choice. And it's not by combining part-time that somehow it's an obligation for many carers to do so. It, it creates a, um, a discrepancy in, 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 the, in, the, in the, the recognition of the importance of it. And therefore, um, even if part-time was of better quality, it's so much, it's so much gendered label that it would not serve the purpose of equality. Whereas if we reduce working time for all, that means there is more opportunity for men to engage in, in caring activity, but also more equality, automatic equality. If there's, there's even some studies about actually it would, it would cost less in terms of childcare because there would be a job share between the parents, I mean obviously for couples, not for the parents, but to have three days of care and, and each parent would care for the fourth and the fifth day separately and because that, I mean, they are, so in that sense I think reducing working time and, all, and that would create an economy that values care or leisure as much as it values work as a, as a part of the productive, um, well productive, not GDP related, but, but pr pr production of quality of life if you like. That, that's I think what we should aim for. It is, but it's the label that, that yeah. Can I just ask, the, the points are absolutely valid. In, in fact, I think it's, it's what I said before, that in the book what we're saying is that, uh, and I have said that also when I was working for the, for the government, is that what you want is uh, the ability to have also senior jobs, on, on this quotas uh, thing uh, uh, affect that too, senior jobs which are part-time, job sharing and so on, 
uh, an emulator report goes on in the civil service, which is not perfect, but it is certainly better than what you see in the private sector. And what you find is that a number of private sector firms, the, the good ones that people want to work for, are already doing this, and, and, that, and that's precisely what needs to happen. But they also, of course, need to pay them reasonably uh, well, because you don't want to also, you know, uh, you know, suddenly face penury. So, so, but if the senior jobs can be done like that, then there's no real reason why further down as well you can't sort of have a culture which accepts that type of, of, the, of, uh, uh, of work relationship you have, which then allows you to mix this caring uh, uh, ability still. But companies need to recognize that actually part-time workers and flexible time workers are very often more productive than the full-time ones. And therefore, you know, we shouldn't see this, this pay gap that, that, that emerges when you work part-time because, in fact, the greatest difference between men and women's pay is when they do part-time work, which per hour. It's the most extraordinary differential that develops. And that, that's the thing that we need, to, we need to, to, to absolutely watch. But the Birmingham case, we have that too as a a very good example of how wrong things can go. You know, these women say, you know, the equivalent job somewhere else and they get paid twice as much, if not more, uh, and won the case. And, and you're absolutely right. And that's why the sort of pay reviews are like, quite a good idea. But of course, the Harriet Harman uh, you know, uh, um, Act has just not really been properly implemented. And that's one of the problems. Uh, but every now and then, there could be a good case study like this, which actually shows what needs. And we've already had a number of examples of even the issue I think one of you was raising of of um, zero contract hours, but also being on call for I don't know how long and not getting paid. And these carers have just having 15 minutes. No. That is changing. There is there there are already a number of case studies that that show that you can take people to court, and then the huge payments that need to be made. Uh, to them, um, but yes, indeed. Then you worry about the finances. What are they going to cut next? The library, so they can pay. But this is the wrong type of debate to have. The debate should be: you should pay people properly for the work that they do, and you should look at equivalent jobs elsewhere to ensure there's no discrimination, which is really what this is all about. And, but I think it is it is beginning to permeate the psyche of, of quite a lot of people that what is going on right now is not right. I've got very little to add, but I, but I, but I, I agree absolutely at this point about particularly women who return to work after having children who become super efficient and per hour worked, highly productive, putting some full time colleagues to shame with what they achieve. And you know, if I were an employer, I'm not, but I, I mean, of course, I wouldn't have positive discrimination, but I would be very interested in any candidate who was a mother because I would actually think, well, I know how much you're already achieving just to get here on time. And be productive in the way that you are, and, and there's something about efficiency and capability there. So, almost really, the reverse of the situation we have now would be a better reflection of of reality in terms of you know prejudices, if you like. Uh, Helen, if it, please, I wanted to add to the grandparents' point. Um, yes. The Centre for Human Rights and Practice, in which I mentioned in my talk, they've also done a report on how austerity is affecting older women. Um, in commentary only, but it's also very interesting and worth looking at because that's one thing they raise, the sort of um, unpaid care penalty. But they also raise the issue of um, young men um, who are unemployed also relying on old, older parents, older women as well. So there's lots of sort of penalties that are not looked at officially in any legislation, but they've started looking at that in commentary. So 
sorry. Vicky wants to come back. Yes, I'm sorry. About, I completely forgot about the grandparents, being a grandmother myself. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, which I am, I have five grandchildren. No, the fifth is due on February the 1st, so, which is quite something. Um, but I did mention, because of course, when we had the visitors uh, coming in the weekends uh, in the open prison, I thought one of them were grandparents, I looked after the children. And I have documented in the book how, how dysfunctional the whole thing is because the grandparents often have to either move to somewhere close to where the, the, the take care of the child, to where the, their daughter or son is held. Uh, and, uh, and of course, very often they have to give up their own jobs uh, in order to be able to do that. And that's just not recognized. And it's, it's uh, in the, my prison, not mixed one. Uh, this, this actually features there, but it isn't something that I've really pushed since. But actually, I think it is a particularly important one that I shouldn't forget, which is. Yes, Helen. Just to, in my former capacity as a as a barrister, I was one of the junior barristers in two thousand and two that helped bring in the special guardianship legislation, which supported many what I used to call the grandma from Grenada or the aunt from Anglesey who would show up in care proceedings wishing to take care of their child and the local authority of course would pay foster carers and adoptive carers money but would refuse often to pay family members to support their own kin. It was called the kith and kin legislation and it's something that I fought for um, other people may know this as well that I myself was placed in care and only recently, having read my own documents, did I find that my, my father's sisters had wanted to care, but were, were, were not even considered childless women. And the cost to, to, to our family emotionally, unbelievable. So yes, we, I cannot stress enough. And again, to all those young women thinking, it's not going to happen to me, um, you may get a call in the middle of the night from a cousin who you've never heard of or a great aunt you've never heard of that you may be down as the person left in the family to care for children or an elderly relative that you may not have heard of. What do you do? How do you go about challenging the state through social service to make sure you get what you need to stay in education, to stay in your work and to support your family? Now, next question, look at me talking. Um, I'm being careful now, Viv, with the description. There's a woman in the nude coat, and there is another woman at the back with wonderful silver hair. <laughs> in turn, could I take those questions? Um, Natalie Beasley, I work for a global communications firm called Craig Gavin Anderson. I feel particularly fortunate to have um, gone straight into this firm from university. Um, we've got Scandinavian roots, so there's a very flat structure, and our global CEO is a woman. Um, we're focusing particularly with our clients at the moment on sustainable development. And um, I know some of our clients in China are looking to Denmark when it comes to sort of combating pollution. And personally, I'd like to now focus more on, I think, this question of women and the economy. And I wondered if the panel would have some examples of perhaps good case studies overseas, bar the, the Norwegian example that I can maybe look into and research. And the lady. Thank you. Um, Carol, 
role that I've got, and I'm, uh, since I retired, I'm a pretty much full-time campaigner to keep our NHS public. Um, good, good. Uh, I just really want to uh, make a point about terminology and the phrase that Jerome used in terms of um, investment in the social infrastructure. Because it seems to me that politicians are often very keen to talk about investment in infrastructure when they're talking about airport expansion or roads or fracking or whatever. Um, and care is seen as a drain on the economy, as something which is just taking money out of it. And I think it's extremely important that we change that notion. And I think the terminology investment in social infrastructure helps to place care um, and uh, NHS care uh, and all the other sort of infrastructure that we've got that contributes and, and that plays a huge part for, um, in women's equality. It's a way of putting that on a par with all of those roads and airports and saying this is something that is a real investment in the infrastructure for the future. Um, and then I've just got a tiny little point about quotas. You know, I believe in quotas, quotas. However, I'm very suspicious of trickle-down anything because I think we've seen very clearly that trickle-down wealth doesn't happen and I think trickle-down quotas are probably um, just as vulnerable um, to um, not promoting women's equality. Thank you. Yes, yeah, thanks. Um, well, uh, Natalie, a sort of di uh, disappointing answer, but I mean, since you work for a Scandinavian company that has a woman CEO, you're already, in that sense, way ahead of the game in terms of personal experience, as you will know better than me in Sweden or Denmark, for example, how attitudes and practices are just completely different. And so it, means it becomes boring to invoke Scandinavia, it, perhaps in this context, but it's a, it's a cliche because it's true. And you know, so I don't. I'm not sure where I can give you better, uh, better examples. I can give you bad examples. I'm a journalist. So my question is, perhaps I put it the wrong way. Yeah. What value do you see? How effective do you think it can be to look over overseas for case studies? Ah, or right. Do we need to be really focusing? You know, what works in the UK? Can we take models from overseas and bring them? Ah, right. Um, so okay. Well, that's a that's a very interesting and it's a massive question. Because, of course, in Britain, we do have this sort of slightly odd, looking both ways uh, tendency. We want uh, continental levels of uh, social support and care with uh, sometimes what we think will be US levels of taxation. And we think we can do both at the same time. And it becomes a very political, uh, uh, complicated political discussion, not least with our relationship to the European Union. Because you know, some people will tell you that you know, that we're menaced by the EU and Brussels, whereas others will tell you, no, we should be trying to aspire to take part more enthusiastically in, in that uh, European ideal. Um, and you can try and guess where I stand on that. Um, but, you know, so indeed we should be learning from a board. We need more women CEOs because then there's just that chance of them being able to tell their organisation, look, this isn't actually scary, this can work. 
real role models, but at all levels, not just at the top. You see one or two famous American female CEOs can make a big noise and write a book about leaning in and so on. Uh, it's just not a great deal of use uh, to most ordinary people in their, in their working lives. So many of those books, someone, a McKinsey person once said to me, these books written by sort of superhero CEOs, and they should really be called uh, Why You Should Be More Like Me. And they're, they're, not, they're not necessarily a great deal of use, but I, I would, personally I would be looking to the Compton rather than, rather than West. Um, and I don't want to lose the word care. I agree with you, that's, and I think I just said, I don't want to repeat myself, that something very unfortunate has happened to the word care. But if we, if we give in on that, then the, the concept itself will be undermined. So, I mean, y yes, social infrastructure is a, is, a, is a very sort of intelligent and uh, interesting way of describing it, and will be useful to some people and to policy analysts. But we mustn't also forget about this concept of care. That, that is the problem, as I said earlier. The concept of care itself has been devalued, when care is something that's supposed to magically suddenly happen in a 12-minute window by someone who's already travelled you know, dozens of miles to get there and is going to get home very late and actually got their own home life to worry about as well. That somehow for 12 minutes and at you know, 7.50 an hour, they're going to care for someone that they've only just met for the first time. I, mean, that's, you know, I think we, we mustn't give in to that concept of care, we must re reinvest in the word care some meaning and some value, you know, commercial in terms of reward for the employee, but also non-commercial. Real, the value of care shouldn't be undermined. That's another very big question. Yes, please. Um, in terms of the uh, our, our overseas examples, um, well. Most of my work is on comparative uh, analysis between different uh, countries and, and welfare systems, so I could give you a lot of uh, resources if you want. Um, I think perhaps um, one example would be uh, Iceland and the way they've implemented their parental leave reform to talk about examples that the UK could, uh, could borrow in terms of how to equalize take up for men and women. Um, but also this idea of taxation in the UK that everybody is very allergic to, to uh, being more taxed more. It's very important for us to show to everyone that taxation is a very loose concept. And when you, for example, because of the childcare cost in the UK, which is huge, and the structure of the benefit system, there's a lot of, of um, findings to show that the average tax rate that women who go back to work uh, have to endure from uh, receiving tax credits, etc., and then having to pay for childcare. The, the average tax rate in some calculation is about 90%. That means that the amount of income that they would earn from going to work full-time, from not working, having to pay for their childcare, and um, being withdrawn their tax credit because their income increased, makes that means that 90% of uh, their, their supplementary income is taken as tax or withdrawn benefits and all of childcare costs. In Denmark or, or Sweden, the tax rate uh, and social contributions are high, it's about 50% in total, but they have uh, free childcare or, or affordable childcare. So when you put everything together, you can show that it's not that the UK is a low tax country, it's a very high tax country for many aspects that are um, necessary for a life to be sustained, such as providing childcare or paying for childcare. So th th this, this is the message we could try and, and, and weave to convince that it's not going to change the, the, the costing of the total, co it's going to change the balancing of those costs and therefore it is reachable. It's up to us to, to, to be able to, to get that message across and I think that's very important. The same for social infrastructure. I think the 
the message is, 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 is about the label, it's about the idea of investment and uh, about infrastructure, which is very difficult to convince that the, the, the way the, the economy or the, the, the fiscal accounts are being, are being calculated, the infrastructure and investment has nothing to do with the structural deficit. That, therefore, we can invest in physical infrastructure because it's a long-term spending with calculable, we can calculate the benefits further down the line. But, um, Paying for teachers, paying for NHS staff, or for childcare workers is a current spending in the accounts. Therefore, every year we, we need to balance out by tax uh, revenues, etc. Even though it is that activity is an investment, it's an infrastructure, it's building human capital, it's building the future generation, and it's building our sustainability of, of our social system and our society. Therefore, it shouldn't be considered as a, as a capital, uh, as a current spending, and therefore shouldn't be part of this deficit reduction. And that's the whole problem. It's, it's, it's both the labeling and also the activity behind that, that we have to convince people that it's as important as, as building roads, or, or if not more important, because of the primary needs everyone has to be fed uh, at one point or another in their life. That that's somehow it's starting to shift. The, 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 the idea that uh, it's an investment and, and it's an infrastructure, it's building capital, the social capital for the future across generations, in the same way as finding energy efficient uh, solutions to our uh, ever increasing uh, climate uh, problem uh, is uh, uh, sustainable for the future. And these in parallel could work together to change the way we conceive our economy. Not until we have a female chancellor, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> but it's international. <laughs> okay, well, there, there are conventions in, in statistics which are international. Yeah. Because each country can do its own thing, but after a while it gets caught out because maybe misrepresenting its income, its deficit, and so on, which actually is what happened in Greece. Um, but there are, there are conventions, and every now and then they change. And that's the interesting thing. So we have just changed the way in which we calculate some of those investments in the UK by using intangibles, you know, things that you, you don't actually see in terms of plant and equipment, but you see it in terms of changes in processes, changes in which we make things, it's a bit more innovation, R&D, and they used to be considered as being just things that added to the final product, and therefore they were just an input into the thing, and therefore you never calculated them. Now they say they're things in their own right, which you've got to take account of, and they actually increase your, your, your GDP. There is no real reason why some of these things cannot be rethought over a period of time. And the interesting thing about education, for example, uh, which I mentioned before on the waste if we don't use it properly, but also care, which after all is an essential part of what needs to go on, cannot be termed as public goods, the sort of things that have to be part of a normal infrastructure of an economy, and therefore you value that in a certain way. And also perhaps you pay for it in a certain way. And I think that's the sort of convention which needs to take hold. And I'm surprised that we haven't been able to do that in Europe, which is you know, quite a caring, you know, by comparison to us with the social chapter and everything. Um, you actually take these things much more seriously than we do. So I think there is scope possibly for doing something. And just one very small point on trickle down, if I may. I know you're coming back with something else. Uh, it is absolutely true. Uh, it's just not, it, it may not trickle down if it's not done properly. 
So quotas have to be done the right way, um, monitored the right way, but as I keep saying, they're not a sufficient condition, they're just a necessary condition. A lot more needs to be done around. So quite right, what I said. Are there any... any there is someone who's... Uh, just have a point of information? Certainly, stand. Please stand. Questions, ladies. Two more. I do apologise. Women, I can hit the back. <laughs> the man in the grey. <laughs> and the woman in the teal. I do apologise. I come from the legal profession and also politics. And politeness and courtesy, I'm afraid, is last century. <laughs> the idea, obviously, is that ladies is a pejorative term because it, it assumes that some women are nicer and more genteel than others. Please, your questions. All right, sorry to be a great man. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting lonely. Oh, could you say that again, Tom? Sure. And I've just been writing a book on quite most of women, and then have a, a point and a question. The point is about age. Um, income inequalities or pay inequalities increase really dramatically with age. I mean, it's 40 and 45. It's something like treble, I think, the hourly pay rate. Now, it's bad in itself, but it's becoming far worse because in previous days, most older women were not qualified, had few competences, doesn't mean excuse pay inequality. But now, already it is working its way through so that older women are better qualified than older men, just as younger women are even better qualified than younger women. So it's just a point to, I think the age factor, the discussion today has been a lot about care of children, that's very understandable, but actually there's a lot of uh, issues around the last mm. My question is about the labels and part-time. I mean, in, in writing this book, I became convinced that part-time is the key, actually, because that's what my question may seem a slightly wacky one, but it's about the definition of part-time. At the moment, it's at 30 or 35 hours. That's where the binary split between full and part-time happens. And that's looking at things very much with a sort of male perspective. And, and I had the thought in one of my suggestions to put this, change the definition of part-time so that it's only eight hours of the Part-time. I don't think you probably get rid of it completely. But if you treated everything else as work, I mean, and, and if it's only those who are really marginal, people are not interested in careers, it's not only important, but it's marginal. Whereas anyone who's working over them is, is invested in their, in their career, and careers don't have to be top-level careers, but they're interested in improvement and progress, whatever uh, they may be. Now, you have the statisticians, of course, all against you. But actually, 
actually is a serious suggestion because otherwise if we stick with the binary that we've got at the moment, it's a really tough task. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Laura Dewar from the Single Parent Action Network. Sorry again, Laura, could you, last name? Laura Dewar, Single Parent Action Network. I'm also a trustee of the Working Families. Um, I want to put a point around economics. I think uh, there are lots of organisations like ours that put forward the economic argument, but the economic argument is seen in little political bites of a five-year term of office. So there are very few governments that are actually prepared to think in the longer term. If you talk about single parents and what single parents I deal with, they're entering work, they're unemployed and they're entering work. 80% of them currently, or dare I say, have a child in primary school. Yeah. And there's a real pressure on those nine out of 10 women to get into work as quickly as humanly possible. So you have people who are qualified, who are teachers, who are social workers, and who aren't gonna go for, yes, top jobs, but could do a job that could actually support them, and they're pushed into the worst possible jobs as quickly as possible. So, you know, someone who's a teacher becomes a cleaner, someone who is a social worker works in a shop. And the, the long-term impact, and I see that impact on those women, that there's no recognition that actually gives someone a bit of support and a bit of, a, a bit of not rushing them will help them and stop them having to be, they don't want to be reliant on in-work benefits because those in-work benefits are increasingly going to be cut. So I suppose it's that, it's the challenge of actually getting governments to think about the investment in people a bit like airports, yeah. so that they actually see a long-term view and they're prepared to invest and put their neck out for people who might not reap the benefits while they're in office but will read the benefits when someone else is in office. And I think that's quite a challenge. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, hello again, Tom. I mean, I think it's a very interesting point, um, because as, as Vicky was hinting, you know, it's really per capita GDP per hour worked is a much more revealing statistic about what, what the economy is actually doing. We're talking about this aggregate GDP number, which doesn't really always tell you a great deal. And um, you know, as you know, the labour market economists are scratching their heads because um, we have high employment rates, 30 million people going to work, and yet low productivity, and, um, and it doesn't quite all add up somehow. So there's, some, there's definitely something about a much more intelligent and honest description of what people are actually doing at work, which is to do with you know, the jargony word output. And, you know, there are traders, for example, in the markets who might only work six or ten hours a week and they earn a very good living because when they're working, they're highly effective. Now, are they part-timers? They're not really part-time, are they? When they're trading, buying and selling at the right moment, they're being ultra-effective and successful, but they're not, in the derogatory sense, part-time, mere part-time. So it's very, very interesting. Um, and, and well, we're just hearing more and more about the, rate, the, the, the sanctions regime and the changes to, to benefits, and it, it's very, it can be very, very unpleasant. And um, perhaps that will be part of the discussion in the run-up to, to the election. And perhaps we'll, there'll be some fresh thinking after the election. Who knows? I mean, universal credit seems to be, you know, um, sort of good idea in theory if it's funded properly and if the transition is handled properly. But in practice, again, we're not really getting the whole story about this and 
uh, perhaps small emerge. In the regulation, you know, you've introduced for the first time you sanctioned for not taking zero hours. Yeah, right, yes. I mean, this is, this is, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, Rebecca. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, um, just responding to what Laura said, and we have talked about this quite a lot. Um, I think one possible solution is to look at the reforms to the job centre and how it's working and perhaps rethink this idea of putting the private sector as a key stakeholder and um, focusing, more as, uh, focusing more on the people that come into the job centre, so tailoring advice to that person. So it's like, okay, what's your situation? How can we help you get some skills to get sustainable work that's going to pay you a living wage and so you can look after your children and you can have enough to pay your rent, etc., etc.? And it feels like at the moment our reforms are going the way of the US and there's work being done at the moment um, by a brilliant lady called Dr Mary Gasser in the US on what's happening there with their job centre reforms and just how um, their response to the unemployment rate since the 2008 recession has been um, that people are being pushed into these really um, insecure, very low paid jobs. And she gave a really good example of woman, one woman who um, went to the job centre. It's called the one-stop shop there. And she was told that there's a... Um, go to the local mall, there's a job fair, and, and you can pick up a job there. And um, she said, but that's only a temporary summer job. And she's like, oh, but you... The, the advisor says, oh, but you can come back again in autumn because we've got other job fairs. And so it's this whole idea that jobs aren't really for life or for giving you a living wage, they're just to um, massage the figures. So the government can say that that person was employed for the whole year, despite the fact that she was only in very insecure, low-paid work. So, um, yeah, I, the, the economists in the room and the academics and the people working on these, uh, these ideas really need to think of uh, solutions and you know, how we can come up with um, better reforms than the ones we've got at the moment. Going back to, to um, Laura's question, I've, again, anecdotally, I'm sure many of you have heard about women who have been um, approached at the job centre and sent to work in the sex industry. Um, and it's been masked and promoted by the state. Has anybody heard of these issues that... You're manning, yes, I can hear people nodding, telephone lines, which are in itself basically working in the sex industry. So, and this inappropriateness of accepting jobs that you do not wish to take for obvious reasons, and also you're not qualified to take, you're overqualified. Um, does anybody else want to answer uh, Laura's question about this um, disjuncture between um, getting back to work as soon as possible and a lack of support? And what you can do and how the economy can support you in this. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah just just on, on part time first. Uh, um, uh, obviously, I mean the, the problem is is um, we we can debate a lot about what kind of how how to qualify or how to define part. I mean, uh, obviously there is a statistic uh, convention, but but the, but the the point I think here is about the individual part-time versus the collective definition of working time and, and even if we manage to have a, a high level of quality of flexibility, if it remains an individual choice that can be taken within the company by an individual choosing to work fewer hours, 
they will be penalized because of the norm that, that's expected from all the other employees. That's why the idea of having a collective reduction of working time is probably more efficient to whichever, um, whether it's 30 hours, less than eight hours per week or, or, or more, you know, as a matter of fact. It's, it's, the, it's the bargaining position of the, of the individual, not just uh, in terms of their employer, but also in terms of the system around them that needs to be changed. Um, therefore, a reduction in the norm of work. And it has happened, you know, working time has reduced over the years, over the last century, so it, it, it's just continuing movement towards that, rather than providing flexible individual part-time that's of quality because it's going to be discriminating in the longer term. Uh, anyhow, and in terms of uh, the, the short-termism of politics and the, the argument for job conditionality, indeed, yeah, I mean, somehow politics are short-termist, but they're also long-termist, because if you think about Tony Blair's reform and uh, the, the welfare work, it's still there, it's, it's been 15 years now, and they haven't changed. So what we need to do is convince the politicians that this is not a way that's working, it's not helping people, it's forcing them into jobs. And it's getting worse with the universal credit, with the sanctions, uh, but also the, the, the very strong disincentive for second earner uh, in, in, this, in the way this, uh, the universal credit has been structured. Um, but, but in terms of fundamental ideology, it hasn't changed much from what was proposed, and even uh, before Tony Blair, other conditionality were, or, or withdrawal of benefits were. It's, it's changing that. It's how to create a different kind of... Uh, economy in the workplace as well, not so much changing the, the, the structure of benefits, but by, by having higher wages, um, the, 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 the gap between the, the benefit level and, and, and uh, employment would be better and more attractive so that people could get the jobs they, they want, but also by changing the, the job supply, by having more jobs that are of quality in the care industry, in, in all these activities that people were doing and now have forced to do something else because there is some supply that doesn't exist. It, in fact, the government cuts, but also in other, you know, it could be provided by the, the non-profit sector, as long as it's supported um, financially by all the actors. So there is a change of um, culture to be had. And we're starting the movement. I mean, we haven't started anything. It started ages ago. If you want to come back, I, just because it's the final five minutes of questions and answers, I've stood up in case I've missed you, and you desperately want to say something and ask the question. Now, I'm going to take three in a row. I need you to keep your questions short, smart, and we'll attack them. Anybody want to ask a question? The final three. Yeah. <laughs> ask three. <laughs> Vicar, please. <laughs> Um, the lady here, right in front of me. And um, final question, lady. I do apologise, Viv. Um, the purple necktie. The purple necktie. In this order, please, quickly. Hi, my name is Kirsten Carlin, and I'm the chapter of the Business Community in Canary I have a question about human dignity. We've talked a lot about processes. We've talked a lot about economic units. We've talked a lot about unfairness in terms of zero working hours. But actually, for me, we need to be thinking about an economy that values people and their way of life with human dignity, rather than valuing an economy as um, a wealthy um, productivity outlet. And my question is actually, where do we put human dignity and fairness and justice values? Next question. 
Ultimate question. Yes, please. Could you announce who you are? Would you be so kind as just to say that slow, so you can let? Oh, please stand up. So you can say your say your name again. And we work on many of these issues, both from an international development perspective. So I just wanted to kind of maybe uh, just a comment on this, because I think that, I don't know if people in the room are aware, but basically the Millennium Development Goals, which are where the international development policy framework are coming to an end, and new goals are being negotiated, which will have a universal, uh, will be a universal agenda, which means that countries, rich countries such as the UK, will also be bound by this commitment. And there is a specific goal of women's empowerment, which includes and gender equality, which includes issues such as decent jobs and equal pay for equal work, but also recognition of care and how care fits in the economy, which is what we're talking about. So I was just kind of wanting to, to say this and see if um, uh, the panel has any thought on how having these discussions at the global level could bring the UK about changing its own practices, because the UK government and the final question. Sorry. Could you <laughs> nice and slow so I can write it down? Sophia. Mine. Yes, Sophia. <laughs> Thank you. And Sophia, your question. Some of us all do the policy recommendations to you know, 
Thank you. Rebecca, can I come to you with um, the question from Felicity? Again, I do apologise for, for missing your last name. The issue of human dignity um, being put back into the narrative of work. Um, obviously, you, you found women who wanted to work, needed to work, couldn't work, and how you found this issue of human dignity at the fall of your concern. Yeah, I mean, um, just to refer back to the women I interviewed, and I, I focused my talk on migrant and um, refugee women, but actually um, I also came across British citizens as well, and across the board, that's what they all talk about, the, the sense that they're worthless, and they um, feel like they don't matter, and they, you know, they see the tabloids, and they hear David Cameron making speeches about single parents or migrants, and they and they, it really does affect their sense of well-being and most of them are depressed and, and have, have issues with, with that and it all comes from this public perception of them as benefit scroungers and, it, and it's very real and it's very strong and I come across it and I'm not quite sure what the solution is beyond um, tackling media representation and politicians being a bit more responsible with the language that they use when they're talking about specific groups. But um, yeah. And Jerome? Yeah, I can join the three points, actually. Um, I think the, 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 the aspect of dignity, fairness, and justice is central to this idea of some activities are outside the scope of the market. The government is responsible for pro providing just justice, fairness, and, um, and dignity for all of us, and changing the way we have our, our uh, caring activities, um, um, but also non-economic activities for international development and for this idea of changing the, the way we work and the way we, we use our time is important. But in terms of time, it's not just freeing time for us to do more care. Care is not just about spending time, it also needs a lot of qualifications. There are lots of caring activities that can't be done just by freeing time for women and freeing time for men. Be it parents or uh, towards elderly uh, people, it needs a lot of effort, it needs qualification, and it, and it needs reward. So it's not just... Um, uh, reducing working time in order to care more. It's also providing care by a public, a public service of qualified people needs to be set and, and guaranteed for the future. To, pre to preserve dignity and to preserve inter intergenerational justice in terms of development goals and all that. Uh, and again, Chana, I, I do apologise, I didn't have time to take your last name down. Chana from Christian Aid, you quite rightly highlight this issue of the international legislative framework that we need to consider so that countries are accountable. And again, you're aware that the Women's Resource Centre coordinated on the last occasion the CEDAW responsibility and did a shadow report to support, well, to highlight the government in action there. I'm going to ask Vicky to answer your question. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not completely certain that I can, but, but I do know there are quite a lot of sort of international conventions that are just completely ignored in this country. So we've got to bear that in mind, particularly one, which a number, the number of signatories, uh, about not putting women in prison, for example, and separating them from their children. That's all uh, forgotten in individual places. So I don't hold, um, I mean, it's good, it's good reminding people of, of, of Millennium uh, Development Goals. Um, uh, absolutely. But uh, you know, one needs to keep on doing it because they're often forgotten, I'm afraid, even though one may have signed them. One interprets these things uh, very much in a different way. But I did want to go back to, to one particular issue, which is the, uh, the pay gap. 
uh, with dignity and all this sort of stuff is absolutely essential. Fairness, absolutely essential. Uh, but often you win the arguments at the end of the day because you put the economic case. Uh, we want an economy that's growing. You know, of course, we want it to be done to, to grow in a certain way that satisfies all sorts of requirements that we all have, sustainability, care, and all that sort of stuff, and a fair society. But nevertheless, we won't, we won't be able to pay for many of these things if we don't actually grow. And that argument resonates with, with, with governments. So if, they, if, if the arguments are put there for in a way that encourage them to think about it a little bit more, then we might see some change. And indeed, the, the reason, I mean, we've seen the huge pay gap, which of course reduces spending power um, for women, uh, puts lots of kids into poverty, and all that sort of stuff. 60% uh, of that pay gap that materializes um, in your late 30s and 40s is due either to coming back part-time after children or, or not coming, you know, coming taking, taking a bit of time off and then therefore you can never recover it. Um, and, and that is huge. Uh, so it's what we call the motherhood trap in a way. And the Forces Society has done a lot of work on this and has, has explained why, why this happens. Of course you can through pressure and highlighting the loss to the economy of, of that type of, of, of pay, the skills that people lose from trying to come back and then be pushed into other areas. And I, have, I keep saying people go to lower skill levels and people can say, well, where is your evidence for this? There's a bit of incredulity about this, and yet we know it's true. So the more of that evidence we can also bring together uh, to make the, the point, then, then the better it, was, it, it would be. But we can't get out the fact that women produce. Um, we may not produce as much as we did before, but, but we certainly do, and, and, uh, and that is why links back to the quota system, I'm afraid, which is that we have to be able to allow this woman to come back to the right skill levels. Mm -hmm. And if you fix it within the firms and they realise the business case for keeping these women in, who they have trained themselves and then disappear, huge loss to them, um, then, then they would also have different practices there. And if you sort of force them to do that in a way, I mean, it's extraordinary they don't realise it immediately, lots of them do, but not all of them. If you don't force them to do that, then, then we're still going to have to wait an awful long time, just as we were saying, for sort of decades, if not centuries, before all these things are turning around. Okay, so. uh, and finally, um, it's ten past four. We've been here a very long time. We are going to break now for refreshments. However, would you ensure that if you have a business card... You may not, not have enough to go round. If you've got a camera phone, take a photo, keep it, share it. It's not very often that we are in a room where we can discuss things. And I do not wish you to lose the opportunity to tackle, as I call it, more experienced minds. I did not recognise, um, I think she's just gone, um, Helen Jackson at the back, who was formidable somebody who I respect a great deal. So please share your knowledge, share your contacts, share your experiences, and take photos of each other's cars, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. But importantly, it's important that the gender gap is real in this economy. I, those in your 20s and 30s, I cannot shake you enough to wake up to realise that it exists and you may not feel it now but you will in the future because those who, of us who are more senior um, have definitely felt it and can in, inform you of that. But importantly, you must be aware to campaign and mention it. 
ensure also that you are applying for the non-executive and the executive roles. I mean, I got a call out of the blue from the Cabinet Office saying, we are looking, and I say this, and I say this, no word of a lie, we are looking, we're desperate, we need to fill a position. We have had no black women replying for three weeks. Could you send this out to your friends? Yes, I would, and yes, I did. But they forgot to ask me to apply myself. So you've got to ensure that the opportunities are there and you grasp them. If you are in your 20s, look at the non-executive positions on the Cabinet website. Yes, they're low. They are working as a prison visitor. They are working um, in a hospital on a board. But get on those boards. Get energised. Get responsible. Because the, 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 the irony of why I'm here today is that when I dropped out of um, public life and I wished to drop out, Vivian, at the back, refused to let me resign my trusteeship of um, the Women's Resource Centre. So at one point, this was my only connection to public life and the world of work for about three years whilst I looked after the twins. So ensure that you remain engaged throughout your maternity leave, make sure you keep up with the world of work. Do not resign. That's what maternity leave is for. That's what, that's what, that's what we fought for. So ensure that you remain connected to the world of work if you have children, whether it is, as, as Tom said, part-time. Don't let anybody call it part-time if that's, that, this is what you have to call it and change the nomenclature. Remain an economic person to remain economically valued. Thank you very much. Would you also like to thank the illustrious panel that I have with me, and also our hosts, of course, the St Paul's Institute, the Women's Project Group, and the Women's Resource Centre. I'm grateful, and thank you.